The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And the way this sermon came to me, because you know that's a dangerous thing to give a preacher the whole Bible and say, just pick something. What do, you, what do you want to share, Lord? What do you have for us? I don't want to just speak and give a speech. I want to hear from the Lord. And the other day, I woke up with this song in my heart. Um, don't you love that when you wake up with a worship song in your heart? Such a powerful thing. And I woke up with it. It's really more of a refrain. Uh, Jimmy and the team have done it a number of times. And it just simply says, if we just wait upon the Lord, he will renew our strength. And it just kind of says that over and over again. And I thought, that sounds good. I think that's from the Lord. That's what we're supposed to talk about. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And the title of my message is Strength for the Struggle. Begin reading with me in verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What a beautiful word that is that the Lord has given us to study tonight. Let's start with the context. The people Isaiah was writing to were people who had been in exile in Babylon for a long time. And so that was wearing on them. They were beginning to lose hope. They were far from home. They were on the edge of despair. They were demoralized, depleted, and exhausted. They felt like God had abandoned them, forsaken them, which is why they cried out, our way is hidden from the Lord. He has disregarded us. Did you see that in verse 27? My cause, he has forgotten me. They were speaking out of a a place of frustration. They sensed a lack. They sensed God's absence. And I wonder, have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever found yourself questioning, God, where are you? What are you doing? I think if you haven't been there, just give it some time. (laughs) You'll find yourself there eventually, as we all do. There are those seasons and times where You pick up the phone and you dial the Lord, but all you seem to get is silence on the other end. And you wonder, God, what are you up to in this season of my life where the hits just keep coming? I feel like my family has been in a season like that over the last year and a half or so with with the hits that just keep coming. I love this quote. It's a great quote from the great theologian Mike Tyson. And he was being interviewed this one time. And the interviewer asked him what he thought about the, his opponent's strategy. 
and what he thought that strategy might be in the ring. And, and here was his response. He said, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the face. <laughs> you know how it is. It's easy to praise God when life is going well, when it's all kumbaya and praise the Lord. And great to see you, brother, and all of that. But then there are those times when life just rears back and punches you right in the face. And those are the times when we find ourselves, just like Israel, crying out, God, where are you? And one of the things I love about a text like this is it encourages us to be honest during those seasons about our struggles, about our emotions. That's what these people were doing. They were wrestling with the thought that God had abandoned them. You see this not just here, but throughout the, the scriptures in the Psalms in particular. If you've ever read through the Psalms, you find the psalmist contending with the Lord and his seeming absence. And, and there's so many raw emotions that bubble up to the surface in that book as well. All that to say, if you're wrestling with the Lord, if you're wrestling with despair today, then you're in good company. And this is a safe place to bring your questions, your hurts, your emotions to the Lord. So what I want to talk to you about tonight is this. What does God want you to remember when your life is falling apart? There are some things that God would lead you to, some words that he would speak over you. And we, we see those in verses 28 and 29. After their question, Lord, where are you? Isaiah says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. But I love where he starts. Have you not seen? Have you not heard? He's asking these questions rhetorically, of course. I mean, these were Israelites. They were steeped in the scriptures. They had been raised with these truths. They were foundational. They were bedrock. But just because you've been raised on a truth and been taught a truth doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times when you don't need to be reminded of said truth. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Peter wrote it like this in his second epistle. And I would love it if we could read this together out loud. He said, so. I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Peter says, now I know you know this stuff, but let me just remind you one more time. Why does he do that? Because we forget. We forget silly stuff. We forget everything. I mean, how many times have you been looking for your sunglasses all over the house, tearing up the, the couch cushions and all of that, only to find them on top of your head, right? You go looking for your keys. You're yelling at the dog, and there they are in your pocket. We forget little things. We forget big things, too. We forget God. We forget his goodness. We forget his faithfulness. In particular, this tends to happen during those seasons of struggle. They have a way of distorting or obscuring our vision of God. You ever been to a fun house or a carnival? You stand in front of one of those mirrors, and it's wavy, and it, it distorts and elongates your, your, your torso or maybe your nose or your face or something like that. And, and it's you, but it's all out of whack. And, and that same kind of thing seems to happen when we're in the midst 
of trials and hardship, our difficulties and hardships, they, they obscure our, our, ref, our reflection or our vision of God, and they cause us to forget how big and strong and faithful he is. So here are some things that Isaiah reminds us of, four things that God wants you to know about him, in particular, those of you who find yourselves in a storm or a struggle this, this evening. Number one, he is eternal. The way that Isaiah puts it is, he is the everlasting God. He is the Alpha, and he is the Omega. Now, this is hard for us to fathom, but it's absolutely true. I mean, we're bound by time and space, and so we have a beginning, and we will have an end. But God is outside of time. What that means is the future isn't a destination to which he's traveling. It's a place he already dwells. Now, here's what that means on a practical level for you and I. It means he knows the end of the story. He knows how this whole thing plays out. In fact, he's told us about it in his word. And if you've read the end of this book, in particular the book of Revelation, then you have a shared understanding, a confidence of knowing that in the end, God wins. (laughs) But it's not just the big story that God knows about. He knows your personal story as well. He knows how your story plays out. And he's already told us that the good work he began in us, he will see it through to completion. And knowing those things ought to give us peace, even in the midst of hardship. God is eternal. Secondly, he wants you to know this as well. He's omnipotent. The way Isaiah puts it is he is the creator of the ends of the earth. There is not one square inch of this entire universe over which God does not declare, that's mine. He made it all. Think of how big and how powerful that makes him. Go back with me just a couple of verses to verse 25. There the Lord says this, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Man, we're part of the the Milky Way galaxy, which is a cluster or collection of of stars and solar systems. There's roughly 100 billion stars in our galaxy, of which there are 100 billion galaxies. And and the Lord says, I named each one of those stars and put them in their place. I don't know if you saw this article. It just came out a couple of days ago. I think it was in the Washington Post. My colleague John Cook sent it to me. And evidently, the Hubble Space Telescope, which is orbiting around the Earth and outer space uh, just sent back an image of the most distant star that has ever been seen. How far away is it? Well, they say it's 12.9 billion light years from Earth. What that means is if you were to take off from Earth and you were to travel at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles an hour and change, it would take you about 13 billion years before you reached this star. <laughs> It's said to be about 50 times the size of our star, the sun, and millions of times more bright. The name that was given to it was Irindel. It's an old English word which means the morning star. (laughs) Interesting. That's one of the names the Bible gives to Jesus. 
in the word. You get to the very outer edges of the most distant galaxy, and what do you find? The morning star, Jesus. He's there. He knows that star. He put it there. He knows it by name, and the Bible says he holds all of it in the palm of his hand. He has creative power to heal, to save, to redeem, to intervene in your life as well. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. Number three, he's ever-present. He doesn't grow tired or weary. I love that. God is always on the job. He never gets tired. He never nods off. He never needs a nap. He never clocks out. He doesn't take days off. And that means that we can because we know that he's not. I love the psalmist. He said this in Psalm chapter 3, verse 5. Let's go ahead and read this one together out loud. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Man, we need our rest. You go more than, you know, I don't know how long you can make it, but you more, go more than a couple of hours without rest, your mind is going to let you know. In fact, we need rest each and every day. They tell us that we'll spend roughly a third of our lives sleeping. And I think God designed us in that way on purpose. Why? Because even the most confident, most self-assured, most independent, most resourceful person on this planet still has to trust God for between six and eight hours a day. Because when you're sleeping, you're vulnerable. And so you're forced into a dependent place. And we're reminded each and every time we sleep that while we are sleeping, he is still working. You say, well, maybe didn't God rest in Genesis? Doesn't it talk about, you know, on the seventh day, God rested? And yes, it does say that. But even when we read about God resting, it doesn't mean that he, he needed the rest because he was exhausted or he was tired or he's just like, whoo, oh, I need to take a day. I'm beat. No, no, no. The word there for rest, it's a word that simply means he, he ceased from creating. He stopped his creative work of he could have just gone on forever. But he thought, this is good. And so he stopped. And so God is always on the job. He holds it all together, as we saw in the book of Colossians. He's ever present. He's always with us. Whenever you cry out to him, you get an audience with him. And lastly, he's omniscient. God knows everything there is to know. Here's how our text puts it. His understanding no one can fathom. Isn't that beautiful? Here's another way of saying that. God is unfigureoutable. I don't know if that makes for good English, but I'm pretty sure it makes for great theology. You, you don't understand what he's up to. Isaiah, a little later on in this book, put it like this in chapter 55. Let's read this one together out loud as well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Man, we were just talking about the distance between earth and the heavens. I mean, about 12.9 billion light years. And God says, yeah, that's about the distance between you know, where your thinking is and where I'm planning and thinking. You see, we, we're, we're bound by time and space. We're finite creatures. And so we can only see this truncated little part of the plan. 
God sees everything. He's transcendent. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. And so we're encouraged not to lean on our own understanding. Right? There are those times when we would love to give God advice on how our lives should go, what we think he should do. And so we have our own understanding, but the Bible warns us, don't lean on your own understanding, because God has ways that are far beyond your capacity to understand. In all your ways, just trust him and and then let him direct your path. So this is the picture we get of God. These are the things that Isaiah the prophet wants to remind us of, that he's eternal, that he's omnipotent, that he's ever-present, and that he's omniscient. God is he's, he's big, and he's powerful. And, and then you think of us. We possess none of those attributes. Our capacity is limited. Our strength is small. Even the fittest and the strongest among us eventually reach our limit, which is what Isaiah goes on to say in verse 30, says, even youths grow tired and weary. I love that he says that. Even youths, you know, if you have little kids, I've got an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old, and sometimes it just feels like they're filled with boundless energy. If you're my age or older, you remember the Energizer bunny. Just that little bunny went around, never ran out of power. It feels like kids are like that sometimes. You know, I told you I went last week on the fourth grade field trip, and man, these kids just... It was bananas. <laughs> but even, even as much energy as they had, we, we hit about you know, 9.15 or 9.30 going as hard as we went. And, and my son and I were both just sawing logs. And he goes on to talk about how young men stumble and fall. He doesn't mention older people. <laughs> I think that the reason is it just goes without saying. Once you reach a certain age, it's like, yeah, we get it. <laughs> But there are several factors that contribute to the burnout that we experience in life. And, and again, this is one of those things that's a common experience to all of us. And, and, and so there are different things at play. The, the trials that we face are one of the hardships that, that certainly uh, that, that are a contributing factor to burnout. They wear us down. They exhaust us. And it's just, again, it's that erosion of the soul. When the hits keep coming, it can be hard to keep going. Maybe you're in a season where you're, you're, you're experiencing trials and hardship, whether they be emotional or physical or spiritual or, or relational. And it's just wearing you down. And it's all you can do to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Trials. Another one would be age. This is an obvious factor that contributes to fatigue. Can I hear an amen from, from somebody that's feeling their age tonight? And that wasn't, you're too tired to even say it. I get it. I can tell I'm getting older by, by the injury stories that I tell. <laughs> you know, when you're younger, you have great injury stories, and it's like, oh, yeah, I fell off my surfboard, and so I twisted my ankle, or I was rock climbing, or I fell off my bike, and you have cool stories to tell. But when you get older, your stories are like, you know, I think I slept wrong. (laughs) Or, or, you know, I think I was sitting down too long. Or I I think I sneezed too hard, and I threw out my back. You ever have that one? (laughs) It's just like, we need to improve our stories. Here's another one. Work. Work contributes to the burnout that we experience. 
There's this article that was written way back in the year 1930. It was written by a guy named John Maynard Keynes. And he wrote an essay titled, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. So he was, this is 1930. He's talking about his grandchildren. That's my generation. And in that essay, he predicted that by the time his children had grown up, advancements in science and technology would make it possible for people to only have to work 15 hours a week. He thought we'd be working Mondays and Tuesdays and have a five-day weekend. I just want to ask you, how's that going for you? (laughs) Everyone I know says that they're busier than ever. You talk to someone, you're like, how's it going? Oh, I'm busy, really busy. You say, that's good, you know, I'm busy too. We're like, busy little bees. I think part of the problem, a big part of the problem, is that very technology that I just mentioned. It allows us to to carry around in our pocket our work life. And so the lines between home and work get blurred. And and it's like through our laptops and our tablets and our phones, work just follows us wherever we go. The giant uh, job search company Indeed recently conducted a survey of 1,500 US workers. And they found that an overwhelming 52% of the respondents said they were experiencing burnout in their jobs. I wonder if that describes you. And you're just like on fumes tonight. There's something else that leads to burnout. And this one might not be so obvious, as as obvious as the other ones. Ministry. (laughs) Ministry or serving, giving. That can be draining too. And I can just speak to this one from personal experience. You know, I'm here on Saturday nights. I get in around 3 p.m. on Saturdays, and I preach my heart out, and I pour out my soul, and and then I do it again Sunday morning two more times. And I got to tell you, uh, you know, I I get home around 2 p.m. in the afternoons on Sundays, and and I'm a zombie. I just got nothing left. I've just poured out everything that I have, and I'm emotionally and spiritually and physically drained. And when you you serve, there is a, a, a... a depletion, a withdrawal that takes place, right? You remember that story of the woman with the issue of blood that's found in the Gospels? And she knew that if she could just reach out and touch the hem of Jesus' garment, that she would be healed. And so she, she stretches out her hand, and she touches his garment in the midst of this big crowd. And Jesus stops, and he says, who touched me? You remember this story? And they're like, well, there's people everywhere. What do you mean, who touched you? It could have been any one of these people. And Jesus said, no, no, no. And then he said this, and I have it in our notes. Someone touched me. I I sense that power has gone out from me. And as you serve, there is a depletion, a withdrawal of power. Some of you have reached that point, and you're just, you're at the point of burnout. For any one of these various reasons that I've just mentioned, you're running on fumes, and you're burned out maybe from the pandemic burned out from work, burned out from life, burned out from the never-ending news cycle of bad news, burned out from giving, burned out from ministry, burned out from the burnout. And you're too tired to even admit it. (laughs) So where do we land? Where do we turn? Let me close by talking to you for a few minutes about how to beat Burnout. How do we beat burnout? Isaiah speaks to that in verse 31. He says, when the, but those who fall, uh, I'm sorry, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not grow faint. Woo! Man, we are no match for the demands of life. They're too great. 
They withdraw too much. But we're not doomed to live a life out of our own capacity. You see, there's a power greater than us. There is a resource that has been made available to us. And if we'll tap into it, we can draw upon that infinite resource to meet the challenges and face the trials of the day. And you say, how do I do that? It's a power that comes to those who wait upon the Lord. Now, I think one of the reasons God has us wait upon him is because in the waiting, there's a stretching. And there's a straining, and there's a struggle, and that's how the strength gets built. Without the struggle, you can't build the strength. God knows that, which is why he calls on us to wait. Think of it as weight training. You've heard of weight training? How about weight training, weight on the Lord. God does this with so many of his saints. Abraham had to wait for a promise. Sarah had to wait for a baby. Noah had to wait for a flood. Joseph had to wait to get out of prison. Ruth had to wait for a husband. Mary and Martha had to wait for a resurrection. The disciples had to wait for the Holy Spirit. And you and I are waiting for the return of Christ. The waiting is the name of the game. <laughs> Don't clap for that. We don't want to clap for waiting, right? Nobody likes to wait. Whether it be at a doctor's office or at a red light, that just shows how impatient we are. Are you kidding me? This light, the universe is out to get me right now. Am I the only one who feels that way? We're waiting at a restaurant for a table. Tom Petty had it right when he sang, the waiting is the hardest part. But one thing that's important to remember is that while we're waiting, God is working. You see, there are ways that you can learn to wait in such a way where it invites the activity of God. And, and it's so important for us as his kids to remember that waiting on God is not a passive activity. Let me say that again. Waiting on God is not a passive activity. So when you hear the phrase, wait upon the Lord, I don't want you to think of idleness. I don't want you to think of passiveness. You see, when you see the word wait in the Bible, it means to lean towards and to look for with a heart of expectancy. To wait on the Lord is to wait expectantly. Now, that word expectantly makes me think of a pregnant woman. When a woman is heavy with child, we say that she is expecting. And she knows that it's just a matter of time before the baby comes. And she might not know exactly when it's going to come. They give you a, a due date. But really, that's just a window. And, and the baby can stay in longer. It might come early. And you just, you're expecting this child. And you know that it's going to come. And, and so what do those parents do who are expecting a baby? They're, they're busy in the nursery, and they're putting together the crib, and they're buying the little outfits, and, and they're putting together the pack and play, and they got the glider. I mean, there's just, there's just stuff, right? If you had kids, man, there's just stuff. And there's a lot to do. And so, too, when we actively wait upon the Lord, and we're looking for God, and we're looking for the signs, and we're waiting for him like that, that's when the Bible says he will renew your strength. Now, the word renew speaks of an exchange or a replacement. 
So here's how that works in our lives. The idea is that we expectantly wait for him to act, and we get to exchange our weakness for his strength. God is promising something incredible here. He's telling us, I will give you fresh strength to get you through the struggle. Strength for the struggle. Does that sound good to anybody else? He says, I'm going to give you new grace to help you with the grind. God is there. He's working in our lives. He says, you're going to mount up with wings like eagles. You're going to soar like an eagle. Now, now when God chose to compare us to an animal in creation, he chose the eagle right here. I don't know about you, but I think you know he could have chosen a lot of different things that would feel more accurate. I feel like more like a turkey sometimes. You know, maybe you feel like that. God says, no, not a turkey. Why did God go with the eagle? Well, eagles are fascinating birds. They're incredibly aerodynamic. I did some reading on this this week. They have this massive wingspan that's about seven feet in width. I mean, I'm, I'm about six feet tall, so a foot wider than my arms are stretched right now. And what that does for them is it allows them to, to float on these thermal air currents. So they only flap their wings about 10% of the time as they're flying. Not like those little you know, jays and wrens that we see around here. They're just flapping their wings all the time. And so what this means is the eagle can just glide on air currents for hours and hours without ever having to land. They also have a special sense that lets them know when a storm is coming. And so when they sense the storm coming, they can, I don't know how they sense it, but instead of flying down and landing in a tree, they use those very currents of the wind as it increases to fly higher and higher. Eagles can fly at an altitude of between 10 and 20,000 feet. God has even equipped them with special hemoglobin in their blood that attaches to the oxygen molecules so that they can breathe better at these higher altitudes where the oxygen is lower. And this is what the Lord had in mind when he said, you'll soar on the wings of eagles. They can get above the storm. And God wants you to fly above the storms that rage down below in your life. Another thing about eagles I learned is that they have this special lens that they can cover their eyes with and protect their eyes so that they can actually, as they ascend, look directly into the light of the sun. And this is helpful because one of the uh, enemies of the eagle is the crow, and the crows just pester the eagle, and the eagle's too big to, to flip over and protect its back as the crows just pester it. And so what the eagle does is it'll look up. It'll just direct its attention, fly right towards the sun, and it gets rid of those pests. Man, you got any pests in your life? Thoughts that drag you down, weights, worries, anxieties, fears, trials, hardships, heartache. Man, can I just encourage you? Maybe we just do it physically. You just lift your eyes. You fly towards the sun. You will soar on wings like eagles. He says, you'll soar on wings like eagles. You'll run and not grow weary. Now, I used to be a runner. Now I'm a walker. <laughs> My wife and I used to run, and I've done a handful of half marathons with her. And, and there's this phenomenon, this experience that runners, if you're a runner in here, you can speak to this. But there are those times when you hit the wall. And when you hit the proverbial wall, it feels like your feet are encased in cement. It feels like you 
can't breathe and you don't want to take another step. You just want to sit down and plop right there where you are in the middle of the race. And this is a common experience. Most runners who've run for long distances have, have gone through that at one time or another. But there's another experience that runners will also talk about, a phenomenon known as the second wind. And this is when you reach that halfway point, when you reach that low point of depletion, you feel like you can't take another step. And, and then the second wind comes in, and it carries you beyond what you thought you were capable of. And Isaiah says, when you wait upon the Lord, your whole race is going to be filled, not just with second wind, but third wind, and fourth wind, and fresh wind, and fresh fire that comes from the presence of the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit. And he does that. He gives that to us so we can finish the race that he set before us. Soaring on the wings of eagles, running and not growing weary, and then walking and not growing faint. So often throughout the scriptures, the analogy or the metaphor gets painted that the Christian life is like a walk. And we're called to walk out our faith. And we're called to walk in relationship with the Lord. And God wants to remind us that he's there with us every step of the way. <clears throat> so there is fresh strength for the struggle that you find yourself facing. There is fresh grace to meet the grind of life. And so here's the thought I want to leave you with this evening. Do you feel more like a reservoir or a river tonight? Let me explain that. A reservoir or a river. I've got, I live not too far from here, and there's this, this reservoir in our neighborhood. And at the beginning of the year, it's full of water. I mean, I can't tell you how big the thing is. Several football fields large, and it's filled with water. It's very, very deep. But then as the withdrawals get made and as that water gets used, the amount of water gets depleted and it gets less and less and less. And as we head into the summer months, there's like nothing there. It's basically dry. And, and that's what a reservoir is. But a river, a river is something different. You see, a, a reservoir is filled with a stagnant amount of water. And it's a picture of life. Life, it drains us. And sometimes it feels like you don't have enough left. But then God gave me this picture the other day. I was sharing with a friend, and he just felt so depleted and so worn out and so tired. And, and God said, you're not a reservoir. He said, you're, you're a river. You see, a river has a headwater. A river is fed from underground springs that never run dry. It's fed from, fed from glacial waters that come from the tops of mountains where there's always snow. And so the rivers always run. And so even as it's depleted, even as the resources are used, there's always more to draw from. What did Jesus say in John chapter 7? He said, if any man thirst, come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. This is the way that God has designed us to live. 
Not as a reservoir where we get depleted and it's like we got to get filled back up and then we get depleted. No, no, no. Jesus did ministry in such a way that as the power was going out, the power was filling up because he was always connected to his heavenly father. And so he never was burned out. He never was stressed out. He was never hurried or hectic or anxious or tired. He just moved in the strength that God provided. So when you're flowing as a river, you know, you're not coming home at the end of your day and saying, I've got nothing left to give to my family or my wife or my kids, because you're drawing upon the resources of the Lord. And, and even as people make withdrawals, it's like you can't contain all of the water that's flowing through you because it's just a replenishing source. Now, that's not to say you won't get tired, right? We get tired. <laughs> we need our rest. What I'm suggesting here is that there is a, a continual replenishing as you lean into the Lord, as you wait upon him, as you draw from those springs and those rivers of life. Amen? Amen. We're going to move into a time of ministry now. I'll have the worship team come back out. And <clears throat> I would be remiss if I didn't give an opportunity at this point for all of us to make our way to the one who issued the invitation and said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. You see, some of you have been running to wells to try to satisfy the thirst, to try to meet the needs, and those wells can't hold water. They're like cracked cisterns. And Jesus says, why you run into the reservoir when you've got the source right here? I'm the river that will flow into you and through you onto those around you. If you need replenishing, if you need renewal, if you need fresh life, and if you need Jesus, some of you are here, and, and you need Jesus. You need forgiveness of your sins. You need him to make you not, you need him not just to renew you, you need him to make you new tonight. And if any man is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away, all things have become new. You think of the metamorphosis, the change that goes, that happens when a, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. That's the, the, the picture, it's that dramatic. When you give your life to Jesus, you're consumed with earthly things, and he gives you wings to fly above the, the things that weighed you down and kept you earthbound before. If that's the desire of your heart, if you need fresh wind, fresh fire, forgiveness of sins, a replenishing, a renewing, just slip your hand up right now. I want to pray with you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So many hands going up. Let me invite you to just say this prayer after me. Say, Dear Jesus, Come into my life. Make me new. I lean on you and your strength and your wisdom and your plan. Thank you for the cross that washes my sins and makes me new. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.